Because you need to assess, A, is the team burnt out? Are they even mentally ready for change? Are there leadership dynamics at play? Are there politics at play? Are there, you know, if we have a GC, do people believe in them? Are we all aligned on a common vision? Or have we got all these siloed teams that are angry and burnt out? So that's kind of part of the requirement process for me is, is not just looking at what are we going to need in the CLM, but like who is actually going to be in my CLM? And what are the interpersonal dynamics mm-hmm. between and kind of giving me a sense of what I'm going to have to deal with if I try to implement this tool. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Bite Size Law with Siddharth Menon. If you are new here, Bite Size Law is a podcast where I interview industry experts in the legal tech world. Some of the topics that we focus on are CLM, which is contract lifecycle management, e-discovery, litigation analytics, artificial intelligence, or any other topic that focus on focuses on leveraging technology to make legal services much more efficient and smarter. As a part of this episode, I had the privilege of having a conversation with a wonderful human being named Murray Widmer. Murray is a senior legal operations manager with HubSpot, and she's been in the industry for more than 10 years. The topic is tech implementation. We focus or we dive deep into the challenges, risks, pros and cons of tech tech implementation in the legal world. We also touch upon the subject of mental health, how you can prioritize mental health in the fast-paced world. Speaking of Murray, she's also a co-founder of Legal Ops Uncensored. Legal Ops Uncensored is a fantastic community that can help you grow in the legal operations role. If you're someone who's looking for a community with mentors, resources, and support to help you navigate your path in the legal ops world or help you grow in a career of a legal operations specialist, please check out legalopsuncensored.com. You will find the link in the show notes. Thank you once again for tuning in to Bite Size Law. Without any further ado, let's get to the conversation with Murray Widmer. Hey, Mary. Welcome to Bite Size Law. How are you? Good. Thank you for having me today. I'm so excited to be on. Absolutely. I'm good. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on. We've chatted on LinkedIn, you know, sent emails. I mean, we've exchanged emails the last, the past few weeks. I'm finally glad that you could make time to be on the show. Yeah, before we start things off, could you provide a brief background about yourself, how your journey has been in this uh, legal operations industry? Yeah, I'm always happy to share. It's To me, I, I think it's a similar story to most people in legal operations, kind of a funny one. I started my background in civil litigation, doing personal injury law for about seven years in Atlanta and in California, went to law school and found a job as a contract manager. And that was around the time that you started to see content mentioning legal operations online. And that was kind of when it clicked for me that All the work I'd done with case management systems and the work I was doing now with CLM systems actually could be a separate career track. Yep. And I got really into the LinkedIn community. Certain early members like Meme or Colin McCarthy became kind of the first influencers I was following in the space. And it's just been really a blur from there. It's been a lot of networking and figuring out who to talk to and learning as I go. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. The legal operations side of things have blown up in the last few years, even though I also have a similar journey 
when I started practicing law back in 2011, I wanted to be a litigator, I want to fight cases and all those cool stuff. But um, I don't know, with the with the advent of technology, I realized that there's so much of potential for legal services to be streamlined and made faster so that lawyers can focus on other strategic technical aspects of legal practice. So that's how I made the switch to become, I was in the CLM space, similar to yours, started off as a contract manager, but I didn't know at that time, what I was doing was basically legal operations. Right now, it's the work that we did back in the day has a definition and the term is called legal operations. So that's really fascinating. I guess it's good that you were able to identify it too, right? It's, it's almost like you just have to take ownership over the work that you were already doing. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So when you switched to the legal operations side of things, were you solely focusing on uh, contract management or was it you know, different flavors within the legal services like case management, e-discovery, so on and so forth. Yeah. CLM, what I've noticed is really the breakthrough point for most in-house teams. Like most in-house teams don't even consider hire a paralegal or a contracts manager or a legal operations person until they start to think, oh, maybe I need one of these fancy contract management things. <laughs> yeah. So definitely CLM, I would say, is the reason I was hired into most of the roles. But once I got into the role, I was able to sell other programs to the team, such as board portals e-discovery, whistleblower software, ticketing software, as many things as I could think of to kind of automate, you know, day-to-day -day life and make things more efficient. That's interesting because I've never heard about whistleblower software. Could you, <laughs> you know, could you provide us some insights on that? Yeah, there are tools that it's almost like automating the employee hotline reporting process. So there's some synergy, as you know, between legal and HR. I've actually worked on teams where the chief legal officer was also the head of HR. Wow. So it creates this unique thing where you can combine the legal tracking aspect with the employee kind of interface. So there are some softwares on the market like Conversant and Vault, I believe, that allow employees to kind of make these anonymous or or de-anonymized complaints. And then it gives uh, HR uh, like an easy way to track the information. Oh, that is pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, speaking about softwares, the basic theme of today's episode is tech implementations. Yeah. Because tech, <laughs> tech or technology, legal tech, as a matter of fact, has become quite a thing over the last few years, especially after the pandemic. I still remember CLM implementation. I work for a company called Coho Consulting, where I act as a project manager on CLM implementation. So I help companies adopt CLM tech. One of the biggest factors that people or companies or legal departments started using CLM is because of the pandemic, especially mm -hmm. when they were when they were when there were no ways to track the force majeure clause, because people wanted to know whether the pandemic would fall under the purview of the act of God. So CLM has taken off in the last few years, and there are other legal tech products out there. But before we jump in. How would you define legal tech? What is legal tech? Is What is it all about? So I think legal tech can be anything. I think it can be any system or software that is going to enable lawyers to automate manual work, to you know enforce compliance, to streamline workflows, 
whatever the legal team deems necessary. So that could be anything from Jira to Happy Fox to Ironclad to Evazort to Bright Flag. I really think that sky's the limit with legal tech. I'm sure in the next 10 years, we're going to see some new types of legal tech we never could have fathomed on this call. I mean, it also, to me, it represents how legal is going to interface with the consumer in the future. So if you think about the new justice tech that's coming out or law firms adopting you know, CRMs to manage their clients and things like that in the future that haven't quite happened yet. I think technology is, legal tech is going to encompass how lawyers interact with their customers on a day-to-day basis and also how the government can provide kind of standardized services to, to us as citizens when we're, when we're going to file a case or when we're going to, you know, submit an immigration form and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yes. I mean, like you rightly mentioned, tech, um, legal tech is a broad term. It's a general term for various use cases or various products out there. Would you mind providing our listeners some insight on the various use cases of technology, especially in the legal world? Yeah, CLM is one. Apart from that, mm-hmm. in your, uh, from your journey, from your experience, what are the other use cases that you know the legal teams can make use of? Yeah. So the main, so if you're on an in-house team, the main ones that you're going to want to focus on or see are going to be, of course, contracts management is usually the primary. It's one of the most urgent needs, right? Because it involves other teams, other stakeholders, and it involves, you know, an area of business that is desperate for efficiency and automation. The next one, of course, is spend management. So e-billing tools, RFP tools like Justice Bid, you know, which also collects diversity data. Then you've got tools that handle e-discovery, like, oh, you've got you know, obviously knowing how to organize your documents and understand where your data is, uh, that could even be SharePoint or Google Drive if you're starting from day one. <laughs> Ticketing tools, you could use anything from Jira to ServiceNow. Like I said earlier, Board Portal, new tools coming out in the patent space and the trademark space. I think in the law firms sector, not a lot of law firms are using CRMs yet, but that is starting to change. So looking at a CRM, understanding how to maintain your website and intake clients properly is key. And then case management, right? Like tracking your cases, being able to effectively give your clients status updates without a lot of manual lift. Those are kind of the main pieces of legal technology. I think anyone in our field should know. Yep, absolutely. So especially when it comes to implementing technology or convincing your general counsel to invest in a specific kind of technology, you would definitely face a lot of challenges because from my experience, when I interacted with other legal departments, lawyers are generally averse to technology. They do not want to disturb the way they generally function. So in your opinion or from your experience, what are the common challenges when it comes to tech implementations from one, convincing the general counsel or the chief sponsor, and then, you know, later down in the journey, when you've invested in this technology and now you have to implement this technology so that it provides you the, you know, ROI. I would say my answer on this has changed over the years. So initially I thought the hardest part was getting buy-in at the front end. And the way I did that was I would lean on my vendors and the industry, right, to provide me as much data as I could to say, hey, if we're going to roll out this tool, this is what you can expect in terms of like impact at the end of the year. This is how long it's going to take to onboard. This is how much money it's going to save us. This is the time. And I've actually found that that piece of the puzzle, getting the buy-in initially from the GC and the CLO has not been the hard part. It is becoming more so only in the sense that tools are becoming more expensive. So it does take up a lot, you know, 
when I was first buying legal tech, it was, you know, $40,000 a year. And now we're playing in a whole different sandbox. So it is a bigger commitment, but I think the, there's also with the cost, the data has improved and the Mm -hmm. selling game has improved. So it's easier to get buy-in at the front end. What I didn't anticipate was when you buy the tool and you begin to implement it, you can lose the buy-in at any point. There's a couple pieces of the implementation process in which you really have to be careful to keep everyone on the boat, because if one person jumps off the boat, Everyone yep. jumps off the boat Correct. and yep. you're back to it's it's almost as if you never got the buy-in in yep. the first place, even though you already gave them your credit card number and <laughs> the money is gone. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It can it can come down like a bridge of cards if one person backs out. So like especially in terms of challenges, how do you ensure that you are prepared? Like an organization wise, how do you prepare for an implementation? Because I can speak from the CLM perspective. Readiness is one key aspect in terms of CLM implementation, such as having your documents ready, having your contract types ready, ensuring that all the stakeholders from different departments are ready and willing to attend these design workshops. But Mm -hmm. in your experience, how do you ensure as an organization that you are ready to this, ready to embrace this technology? So one of the things that I do during the requirements process, which I would rec- recommend for anyone, is, is you're not just simply sourcing the technical requirements of the team. You should also use that period of time to run the team through coaching exercises. Because you need to assess, A, is the team burnt out? Are they even mentally ready for change? Are there leadership dynamics at play? Are there politics at play? Are there, you know, if we have a GC, do people believe in them? Are we all aligned on a common vision? Or have we got all these siloed teams that are angry and burnt out? So that's kind of part of the requirement process for me is is not just looking at what are we going to need in the CLM, but like who is actually going to be in my CLM? And what are the interpersonal dynamics mm-hmm. between and kind of giving me a sense of what I'm going to have to deal with if I try to implement this tool. Yep. And then that's kind of how I structure the project charter. So when we go into the tool, when we go into buying and implementing the tool, I build a system and I say, okay, in the upcoming year, and even at HubSpot, it was upcoming three years. These are the phases. This is the timeline for each phase. And this is the work each of you, you know, specifically as a team have to complete in order for the phases to move along. And then that way that builds a a foundation that I can kind of track. And that way, when people do go rogue or people stop attending calls or Mm -hmm. stop answering their Slack messages, I can kind of point to that and say, hey, we all committed in writing to this timeline and here are all the updates you've received. and, And this is where we're going off track. So in order to actually improve, we need to have you come back in and join these calls. And so, yep, yeah, yeah. You have to protect yourself. <laughs> Absolutely. I 100% agree to you on that, with you on that because having a project charter is crucial in any projects, especially tech implementation projects. Because even as a project manager, if you don't have a project plan and if you don't have the key stakeholders keyed in and who is responsible for each task, then it'll be a difficult task for you to chase people and get them back on board. So mm-hmm. I can I mean, like you rightly mentioned, project charter is one key element in ensuring these implementations are run smoothly. And for me per se, and I'm pretty sure that for you as well, starting as a legal operational specialist or person 
from a law background, we generally don't have so much of experience preparing project charters or project plans because that is not the skill set that we gained or that was not something the law school prepared us for. But it's really fascinating. Like when I talk about legal operations specialists to other people, especially law students, I always tell them, yes, it is important to have some level of subject matter knowledge, but also you need to think like a business person, like you need to know what goes into a project, the ability to learn project planning, project chartering, so on and so forth. So that's really interesting. So coming back to the... Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so coming back to that project management angle of tech implementation, how do you build a realistic roadmap when it comes to implementing technology? Yeah, I mean, I would say you have to be conservative with your promises and your timeline. So a CLM these days, for example, if we're talking about that, it may have a lot of features, right? So modern CLMs, they have a repository, they have clause libraries, they have intake workflows, they have all sorts of bells and whistles. And you don't want to give the impression that your users are going to have everything on the plate right away, right? So you want to kind of tell them and make it clear that there's going to be an appetizer first and then <laughs> a salad, and then there's going to be the entree and then there's going to be dessert. And yeah. you kind of just have to, I always say, I always, you know, set low expectations and then try to over, you know, achieve Deliver. them. Yeah. So for me, like in year one of a CLM implementation, right, I'll say, we'll, we'll get most of the contracts in the repository. We'll get the basic workflow stood up and we'll get you in there and we'll get you learning how to do it. And we'll get some clauses in the clause library, but it doesn't mean everything's going to be perfect. And it doesn't mean everything's going to be done. We'll learn as we go. And hopefully by, by maintaining those expectations on the roadmap and giving everyone leeway, we can account for the things that happen during the year, right? Because some of your stakeholders might have, especially with contracts management, they have end of quarter, they have end of year, just things are happening outside of this implementation. And so you have to give enough room for people to breathe if personal conflicts happen, if other like department conflicts happen and they just can't, they just don't have the bandwidth to keep up. Yep, for sure. I always tell people, especially while they are implementing CLM tools, is that go for the low hanging fruits. If you do not know what kind of contract types you want to migrate or what kind of contract types you want to bring in, you go for uh, something like an NDA or an MSA, which is much more easier to implement than, let's say, a procurement contract or, or a complicated contract. So, and also, like you rightly mentioned, cause you need to underpromise and overdeliver. Otherwise, if you already set the expectation that the CLM system, it can be a one-stop solution for all the contracting challenges that you face, people, you know, generally when they start working on these systems, realize that, oh, this is not what was promised. Especially mm-hmm. this is, that's the reality of technology, right? You need to ease into it rather than, you know, have a big bang sort of an implementation. So having that roadmap in mind, how many months do you set aside for implementation? So what is your typical timeline? It can be from the CLM world or it can be from like a need discovery perspective. Like on an mm. average, how much time do you set aside? It was interesting. I actually, so for me, I think appropriate timeline is nine to 12 months mm-hmm. just to get the team settled in a new tool. I know a lot of vendors will say we can get you in there in two months. And like, yes, technically that's true. I did run a, a poll, like a survey on implementations and the majority said, you know, six to 12 months was about the time frame that they did it to. 
but that's not even factoring in integrations, right? So if I buy a CLM tool, for example, or if I buy an e-billing tool and I want to integrate it with NetSuite or Coupa or HubSpot or something like that, that's a separate, you know, year's worth of planning and, and you know, even getting the hours from the engineering team to even have a discussion about it can take in a company like HubSpot, it could take six months. So, so yeah, it yep. just really depends. It depends on the size of your company. So when I, when I rolled out a tool, when I was at Dapper Labs and it was like four of us on the team, it took like a month to mm -hmm. set up a tool because there was no, there was nothing in the way. There was no, mm -hmm. there was no stakeholder meetings to have. There wasn't anything like that. It was just, you just pop it open and see where you go. But at a larger organization, it can take up to a year simply because of interpersonal dynamics and schedules. Yep. For sure. Speaking of CLM is one use case for these timelines. Do you also work with e-discovery tools or let's say a vendor management tool? You said that you already have a CRM system or you work with CRM systems. What is your, what's your experience with e-discovery tools? Because when I started off my career and I did my law in India and my initial few years in law practice or law career was in India before I moved to the North American side. At that time, law firms used to outsource a lot of e-discovery work to India because it was much more cheaper. But what I see right now is that major law firms already have e-discovery systems, you know, implemented so that they don't have to send these documents out of their server or their cloud because there are so many challenges, privacy, data protection, and so on and so forth. What is your experience working with e-discovery tools? How are how complicated are the, is the implementation from in that side? In my opinion, so the setup of an e-discovery tool is certainly not as complex as other tools. It's you know usually connected through APIs and it's a cloud database. And the technology has certainly improved when it comes to like OCR and, and being able to scan and kind of report on documentation. I know a lot of law firms are offering kind of, they're basically, if you come work with us, all of your cases will be in our e-discovery portal and we'll handle the hosting, we'll handle the, you know, kind of document assessment. And that's worked for a long time, but now the prices of law firm services are exponentially increasing. Mm -hmm. You know, their rates are going up almost as high as 40% this year, and they're passing on a lot of like pass-through subscription costs. So I know in-house teams are starting to look at getting their own e-discovery tools, which is kind of, that's a lengthier process simply because of the fact that when you have a company and employees have been using Slack and email and you bring in a tool that essentially connects to them through API and is, is almost in some sense allowing you to pull all of their conversations and all of their data and all of their information, that can be a huge cultural issue for yep. tech companies that kind of have built this culture around autonomy and individuality and, you know, creating a psychologically safe space. So that's a bit of a tricky sell for legal teams because it's almost a big brother vibe in tech yeah. companies to be able to say, oh, legal is going to watch all of your messages now, even though that's not really what's happening on a technical, yep. from a technical standpoint, that is what it feels like when you try to go sell it to, to HR and to your CLO. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's fascinating. So we've covered getting people on board with implementation. We've covered another crucial aspect of creating a realistic roadmap while implementing. Let's say that everyone's on board, you know, people are investing, you know, 100% of their time or close to 100% of their time in making this implementation a massive success. Mm -hmm. How do you ensure that people don't get burnt out, you know, 
how do you like what is your take on that i often see that people especially stakeholders are like oh my gosh we are not able to invest a lot of time in our day to day activities because we are so invested in this and rightly so because they see the end goal but we as human beings cannot work like machines how do you ensure that people like us don't get burnt out at the end of the implementation yeah it, you know it's such a it's it's such a hard job and it's it's something that i've i've gotten so right and so wrong and i feel so passionately about it that i was like actually starting a tech product to deal with that but one of the things i will say is is that one of the biggest friction points is is that everyone can't you're not pulling everyone in in the same place so a lot of people a lot of tech implementations i've seen your your csm over on the vendor side has their own project management dashboard they have their own communication portal if you hire a consultant they're talking to you from email everyone's kind of disjointed right so you just have to have all these meetings just to translate context just to distribute information just to make sure the procurement starts their own planning doc everyone else gets shared on that planning doc and if no one goes and reads yours, you have to send them a Slack every week reminding them, hey, I already made a planning doc. Let's go in here, guys. It looks really cool. <laughs> so doing whatever you can to reduce the number of meetings and reduce the burden of context sharing, kind of pulling everyone in in the same place and making sure that everyone is aligned is key to kind of avoiding burnout. So the least number of meetings you can have keeping every meeting focused on a fresh forward moving topic instead of repeating the same stuff that would, you know, happen the previous week, assigning clear expectations after each call. So they know if we get off this call, you're supposed to go work and practice at least building, for example, one clause in the clause library. And when we come back next week, we'll talk about it. So as long as people have a reduction in meetings and a clear like takeaway from each meeting and they don't get on the call next week and feel like nothing has progressed, I think that's that's how you keep people from from feeling like the project has stalled or or feeling burned out. And then also just making sure that if your vendors are going to provide support hours and talk to your your internal customers, making sure that you are all distributing the same messaging and that you're all communicating and making the same kind of promises. One of the things I've noticed is that I just admitted that I try to underpromise, but vendors can sometimes come in and overpromise. So mm. if you have to have that kind of relationship sorted out from day one to make sure that you're not confusing the people who are receiving the the benefit. <laughs> yep, for sure. So especially uh, we talked about the fact that we need to collaborate internally and mm. reduce the number of meetings so that people don't uh, feel really exhausted at the end of it. But do you have any internal collaborative collaboration systems apart from Slack? Like in our company, we use SharePoint and we have different SharePoint sites for different vendors or different customers. So how do you collaborate internally? And who yeah. takes the ownership of maintaining these repositories or collaboration sites, uh, so to speak? So I use Google Docs and Slack right now. I've tried using other tools in the past and they just don't work. You know, mm -hmm. like tools like Asana and Notion and things like that just don't, they're not built to sustain complex projects like that. And they use a lot of manual data entry. So I've just for now stuck to, stuck to my guns. And I think the person who's running the project, obviously, so in my case, that's me, needs to be the one that, that kind of 
has to do the heavy work of maintaining and centralizing all the information. Ever, you know, there's always one. We kind of follow the dossier model at HubSpot, and the D is obviously the you know the directive, the person in charge of the project, and so mm-hmm. that is the person who everyone should go to for updates and information and making sure things are on track. Yep. All right. So, how important is change management? Let's say that we've implemented this technology product. Now it's time for people to start using it. However, when it comes to a new technology or a new way of doing things, people need to be trained. The change management has to be also effective. Otherwise, the technology that you've implemented is not going to be used. Do you have any strategies on change management? How would you deal with change management to ensure that people are completely on board? Yeah, your enablement needs to be set up the very first day. So that's a mistake that I've made that I would caution anyone is you are basically selling a product to your internal customers. And so if you don't have a setup website with training videos and easy to walk through guides and FAQs from day one, you've already kind of lost the battle. Just the fact that you're forcing people to go to you on Slack or email and ask you questions over and over again, you're putting them in a position where they feel it creates more friction. Right, because most people don't want to go ask questions. They don't want to admit that they don't know something. So you might scare off some customers and not get the feedback. People like self-service, especially in today's age where we can do anything with the click of a button. Mm -hmm. If you're not delivering that level of service, then you've already failed. The other one is just you have to give a grace period. So it should take from the minute you launch the program with your enablement website to the minute you maybe shut off the pre-existing program or say, okay, I'm going to start enforcing usage of this tool you got to give them about three to four months, depending on you know your company and your company, how busy people are. Then the other one is you have to go talk to their managers and make sure that if they do have to attend a training call or they have to spend time onboarding, that their workload is reduced during that period. Because it's not fair for people to learn basically a whole new skill and then still have their managers chasing them. You know, where is my deliverable? Where is my contract? Where is this? Where is that? You know, you have to kind of go be their advocate because no one else will be. For sure. Yeah. And do you see a lot of resistance, especially when it comes to embracing change? Because I've, uh, again, going back to the CLM example, mostly I work with external customers, right? External legal departments. So I've heard from my fellow project managers that, oh, the procurement team is resistant to this change because, you know, they feel that their existing way of doing things is far efficient. So how do you deal with such issues related to resistance to change? So in terms of being external stakeholders, I think if you see resistance to change, it could be a couple of things. It could be that, like I said, you didn't provide a level of fast service. And so they're getting frustrated because using your tool is right now in the interim, taking more time than doing it in the old way, or you're just not communicating your vision well enough. You're not, they're not bought into, to what you're trying to do. They don't feel the impact right away. So they start to lose faith, right? Because they start to see it as Marie's putting me on all these meetings and the tool looks half set up and I don't, you know, I don't have a website to go to, so I don't know where to get my information. So this just seems kind of stupid. (laughs) (laughs) So it's, they're all very, I think people, people do lose faith in a project for very valid reasons. Obviously as the person on the other side of it, when you're usually a solo team doing these kind of projects, you tend to to focus more on yourself and your your own frustration point. So it is hard sometimes to pull back out and and look at it externally and see where you may have done some things wrong and and lost other people. It, it does take like a lot of self reflection and awareness to be able to kind of survive change management because you really have to be more empathetic 
to your customers' needs than to your own needs. Yep, for sure. Once the change management is rolled out, once people are trained on the system, then it's essential that we track the user engagement. Like how uh, you need to know whether you are getting the return on investment and ensure that people are using the system to its optimal level. Is there any methodology that you follow while tracking user engagement once the technology is adopted? Yeah, so it's interesting. There is software on the market that does that for like vendors, like user onboarding tracking software, but there isn't anything, at least not until I built my tool. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Tiny advertisement. Go for it. What I've been doing manually, so what I've been doing manually is surveys, and then I keep like a Google sheet and or on Slack, right? I just, all the questions create a trend, right? So if I, if I have FAQs on a website, I, you would want to track how many times people have opened certain FAQs. Or if you have a certain number of questions in Slack, you can kind of put that data together and figure out where the friction points are. So you just have to like, you have to do a lot of manual lift to understand where your users are falling off. So if you notice that you're getting like no questions about document upload or no questions about running filtered searches in the repository, but you're getting a lot of questions about, I can't figure out where to find the activity feed or the place to comment this person, then you know that there's a bad UX issue. And then you need to put more effort into sending out a video and and giving more enablement to kind of target those pain points. Yep, for sure. And also these days, some uh, products, especially in the CLM world, products like Agiloft, Icertis also come with those reporting features just to see how many users use the specific feature, what team uses the most number of contracts. So maybe that's also a good way. And I definitely look forward to your, you know, software when it's released in the market to see, you know, how you track your user engagement. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about your product? Because we just, you know, briefly touched upon it. Yeah, I I was like, didn't know if I wanted to go full in. So I'm building a piece of project management. I shouldn't say piece. It's a project management solution specifically for legal ops. Oh. So it combines all those things, right? So from roadmaps, KPIs, user onboarding, tracking, project management, like project charters, being able to onboard internal and external users all in one place, kind of solving kind of all of the the pain points that that I've had hurting cats over the last couple of years. And then just applying, there's a lot of new AI technology that's on the market that isn't being applied in this space. So just mm-hmm. bringing that in and putting it all in one place, making it make sense. <laughs> <laughs> what made you what made you uh, come up with the software for project management in legal operations because i am smiling right now definitely this is an audio only podcast listeners won't be able to <laughs> understand if i'm smiling or not the reason why i'm asking you this question is because this is a common challenge that i myself face in my day to day work so what prompted you to go to that go that route you know that quote that says like the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting <laughs> a different result Correct. So yeah. That was kind of my breaking point was like, I've been doing implementations for almost 10 years and it just, the technology is improving, but we aren't like, it's yep. not getting better. It's, it's still messed up every time. It's still like chaotic, like slurry of manual, like data entry and Google docs and, and checking to see who skipped what zoom call. And, and I was like, there has got to be a way to automate some of this <laughs> stuff. Like this can't be, this cannot be the rest of my life. So that's kind of when I had my my breakdown and that was where the idea came and and so now I'm that's where I'm putting my energy because 
even if I don't want to do project management for forever in an in-house team, at least I could try to, you know, fix it for other people. Yep, for sure. So what are the key components in this particular tool, like a one-stop shop for streamlining all the tasks, automating, what do you call, assignment of tasks, having predecessors in place? I'm just trying to... Mm-hmm have a vision. Oh, sorry. Uh, try to picture this tool. Just So if you think about it, like your CSM on the vendor side, if you hire a consultant and you, you all have different data points and different value adds. So it's bringing it all in one place. So you're all working out at the same, the same place where your roadmap is automatically generated by AI. AI can send out, you know, instead of you having to go back and look through and say, okay, where were we after that last Zoom call, right? AI can record the call, transcribe it and summarize it, Mm -hmm. right? And then you can automatically send out updates so that you don't have to do that manual work on Slack. So it'll integrate with the systems you have. It'll pop out updates. It'll remind people when they have upcoming tasks without you having to do that extra work. And then things like it can integrate with the tools that you're onboarding. So if you're implementing a, a CLM system, it can integrate with the CLM and track the kind of unique milestones in the user journey. Mm-hmm. And then it can kind of give you update. Okay, so you I've onboarded 20 people, but only like five people have made it all the way through signature mm-hmm. or only five people have actually uploaded documents or things like that, right? So you can actually get a realistic look without talking to your users every day on where they are in their journey. And you can identify what enablement needs, needs to get sent out, what blockers are happening, things like that. And then the hope is, is that you know, CSMs don't want to spend 12 months on a project. They don't want to be on all those calls. You don't want to be on it either. So if we can shorten the length of implementations and then we can standardize the quality that way, no matter what legal ops person is on the job, what CSM is on the job, you're getting kind of the same result every time. That would give us all a lot more job security for sure. (laughs) And it would cut down on that 77% failure rate. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Uh, That's really fascinating. Yeah, it'll be cool. I don't want to, obviously we have other topics to cover. For sure, for (laughs) sure, yeah. Yeah, I'll definitely be looking forward to uh, seeing that product getting launched. All the best for that. So we live in a fast-paced world, especially with regards to technology, implementation. There's so many day-to-day tasks that we try to keep up with. However, some certain things that professionals, not just in the legal world, but generally in, in the world out there, in this fast-paced world out there, we tend to neglect our mental health. You've been a huge advocate on mental health. The posts that you post on LinkedIn, you're pretty vocal about it. Right off the bat, how can people, especially professionals, busy professionals, prioritize their mental health in this insane world? Yeah, so... This isn't the most positive way to say it, but the harsh reality is, is that I can't guarantee you that your manager or that your GC or that your team are going to invest in your mental health. You know, I, I, I could sit here and say every team needs a coach. Every team needs, you know, to be doing exercises to work on their interpersonal relationships and their, and their mental health. But sometimes your only advocate is you. So what I would say is you just have to get in the mindset that a lot of us are, especially in this industry, are coming from a background where we were taught to be people pleasers. And a lot of us are kind of primed mentally through law school and through the hazing that you see in law firms to believe that our worth comes from what we can give to other people. Mm. And it does take a lot of unlearning to start to think, I'm going to take that time during the day. Because I could sit here and say to everyone, if you just take an hour in the middle of your day and you go for a walk in the park and go buy yourself that coffee you were thinking about or go 
go hug your kids or something like that. I find a lot of people that will respond to that and go, that's a great idea, but, and a lot of us in this industry have excuses because that's just how we're programmed. And the thing I would say is really just start slowly investing in content. So follow people on, I, I don't care if it's TikTok or LinkedIn or <laughs> podcasts, but you've got to follow people who are experts in this and it can help you uncondition mm -hmm. that feeling that your value comes from pleasing others. Because the only time that you're really going to achieve better mental health and better clarity and better work is when you stop caring about making other people happy. And in turn, I think you'll actually find, which is kind of a, a screwed up system, but you'll find that when you stop trying to make other people happy or care if other people like you, you actually are kinder mm -hmm. to the people in your life because they're getting the full version of you, not the broken, okay. burned out half version of you, the fake version of you that you're trying to be. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. If you put a smile on your face 24 seven, you're fine. You're eventually going to wear out. I 100% agree. And speaking from my experience, I'm a huge proponent of mindfulness practice, taking some time off at least five to 10 minutes a day, just to sit by yourself, look inwardly, and just keep your emotions in check and understand what's going on in your mind. So when I do that, I feel that I'm less irritable and less, uh, I get less agitated at work or whatever. But when I don't do that, when I haven't had that time, it's just your day goes for a toss, at least emotionally. You don't feel that good about yourself. But like you rightly mentioned, we live in a world where we are meant to please at least your, you know, uh, the, uh, we follow a hierarchical system. So anyone who you report to, we try to say yes. And like you said, we have to unlearn that kind of a mentality. But okay. apart, yep. so again, the other day you sent me this article where we where they discuss um, cognitive as well as emotional empathy. Like, let's say that someone in your organization or my organization is going through something emotionally at home or in their professional life. How can we, how can I be of some use to them? How can I be a pillar of support to ensure that they can alleviate some of the pain that they have in their mind? Yeah, I think a couple of things that I've been thinking about with empathy, right, is because Every culture, at least these days in modern company, in modern companies emphasizes empathy, but I don't think that there are any guardrails in place to talk about what is empathy in the workplace. Um, some cultures, some workplaces will try to tell you we're all a family. We all know as common form that that's completely inappropriate. And that usually just creates a situation where you're being asked to, you know, kind of not have boundaries and inappropriate behavior happens. So I'd say understanding like when you empathize with someone at work, you are in no way obligated to take on the emotions of their experience. You are not, you don't even need to ask. So if someone has had a personally traumatic event, you can empathize with them and still not have to receive that information, right? So you don't have to know the personal details of someone's life at work mm -hmm. to understand that they appear visibly upset, that they appear burned out. What you can do is through cognitive empathy, you can understand just take a step back and look, intellectualize it and understand uh, this person is going through some emotions. I may not know the full length behind it, but I can kind of assess as an outsider that this means that I could probably take a step back. I can give them more time to complete this task. I can ask them if there are any blockers to completing this task. Mm -hmm. So I think just setting some like 
practical exercises for yourself to do to make room for other people's emotions and experiences is important. But then also just remembering that doesn't mean you have to get in a conversation with them about their personal life. And it doesn't mean that, that they have to, because, because people having to share personal stuff in the workplace can be traumatic. And it's also a form of trauma dumping that I don't think is appropriate for not everyone is primed to receive information. So we shouldn't have to be in a place where we have to go tell our coworkers deep, dark things about us just to get a deadline extension. Right. So kind of just understanding the the psychology behind workplace and empathy in the workplace, I think will help (laughs) all of us. (laughs) Yeah, that is that's really interesting. Thanks for sharing that, Marie. So this is really interesting because in none of these episodes, I've had the opportunity to speak about mental health, even though it is, yeah, it is not related to tech implementation, but at the same time, it is relevant in any uh, stream of work that you do. For law students, or let's say people who are just starting off in this career, in the legal career, how would you help them? Because the reason why I'm going to ask this question is there have been a lot of law students who've reached out to me asking me about legal operations, tech-enabled legal services. Because right out of law school, people think about you know practice, being a partner, wearing all those fancy suits and making big bucks. If somebody came to you like a legal student, law student or a person fresh out of college, how would you help them guide to start off a career in legal operations or legal tech? Yeah. So one of the things I'm building with the Legal Ops Uncensored community is kind of an incubator for this. So one of the frustration points I've seen for many people, because I had to learn legal ops myself, right? I had to just cherry pick information online, do my own research, rework my resume, sell myself, break in by myself. And people are still going through that. They're coming as a paralegal, a lawyer, an engineer, and they're just kind of making it up as they go because there's no standardized intake track to legal law. So I'm trying to fix that. But the one thing I will say is, is that people are friendly in this industry and you really just, you get what you ask for. So if you go add people on LinkedIn, set up coffee chats, ask as many questions as you want. There's no such thing as a stupid question. And don't be afraid to look at your resume and go, oh, you know, these legal ops people are kind of doing document review. And I did document review before. Don't be afraid to credit your work as transferable from day one. So if you went and did like a secretary job in high school, or you went and worked as, you know, you were at a cashier for a while, those are transferable skills that you can bring into legal operations. You just kind of have to own yourself and own your brand and just kind of demand space in the room and space at the table and just know that we're not going to say no to you. And there are places to go. There are places to go and people to talk to, to give you that information. From a mental health standpoint, though, I would say I I do see a lot of people talking about running away to legal operations because the mental health in the legal industry is so bad. Mm -hmm. And I would just say there is a way to still work in law and become, you know, the next generation of mentally healthy leaders. You don't have to give up one to do the other, certainly. So just learning to say no from an early age, learning to, you know, get therapy earlier, get coaching earlier talk to people about mental health, like the conversation we're having now. I have a lot of these conversations at the dinners that I go to with other legal ops people. And the more you normalize it and the more we normalize what good and bad behavior looks like, then the quicker we're going to be able to eradicate it. I'm happy that people are right now comfortable talking about it. Culturally speaking, it's a taboo to talk about mental health because Mm -hmm. you get put in a box, oh, this person is mentally unstable or this person is going through something, which why should that be the case? Because let's say if you have a broken limb, you definitely go to a doctor, 
or a physiotherapist. <laughs> but if you are going through something, why not speak to an expert who has experience? And sometimes all it takes is just speaking about it, being open about it. It's, it's really fascinating that people like you have been talking about it in public so that we move away from that stereotype, right? We move away from calling mental health or mental health issues as a taboo. So mm -hmm. that's really fascinating. So we spoke about the community that we belong to, the legal operations community. And I personally feel that this community is one of those positive communities out there. Because whenever, when I wanted to start a podcast or when I want to have a guest on, I always reach out to them. It's always, they've always been receptive to the questions that I ask. They are supportive, even if they can't make time. You know, they tell me, okay, hey, I can't make time right now, but I'm always willing to help you out or come on your podcast, which is really fascinating. So apart from LinkedIn, are there any other communities or blogs or articles that people can follow, including me, to stay abreast in this legal operations world? Yeah. So Jen McCarran does the Clock Talk podcast. And then there's Mary O'Carroll, specifically Mary O'Carroll's podcast for selling the strategic value of legal operations. She's kind of been the hallmark of our industry in terms of selling as like a must have in departments. Gosh, there's others. Obviously the legal operators community is a great place to go. They have content webinars, templates. Colin McCarthy was like one of the first people to bring me into the legal Mm -hmm. ops industry link l-i-n-k that's mm -hmm. with Steph Corey is another great place to go that's um for mid to senior level members of the legal ops community who are looking to kind of continue to scale their career my community the legalopsuncensored.com is for anyone so if you've never even heard of legal ops and you happen to listen to this podcast and you want to just get started on your career mine is like free and it's a break-in point for anyone it's kind of it's supposed to be an incubator for legal yeah. ops careers your podcast, obviously, <laughs> Thank think, you. why am I blanking on the... Yeah, I also have a couple of podcasts, especially in the CLM world. CLM RX is pretty good. Cami Paulson's. Yeah. yeah. Cami Contract... is lovely. <laughs> yeah. Contract Heroes by Mark and Pepe. They're also really good. But LegalOpsUncensored.com is something definitely check out. I'll definitely provide the link in the description to today's episode. Yes. And Colin's community is, is called legal operators, legal operators. Perfect. So and there's in-house outliers by, by bright flag is also another good one. And the legal ops podcast is also another good one. Awesome. Yeah. I'll provide all of this on the description so that people can check it out. But Marie, it's been a pleasure talking to you. It was wonderful hearing your yeah. perspective Thank you so much for making time. But before you go, where can people reach out to you? I know that you talked about legaluncensored.com, but is there any other way that people can reach out to you? Yeah, I'd prefer that people just reach out to me on LinkedIn. You know, please add me, feel free to message me. I'm happy to chat. That's kind of where I'm most active. So come find me. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thank you once again, Marie. Thank it was so a pleasure much. chatting with you. It was great to talk to you. The hour went by fast. <laughs> Absolutely. I know. Take care and have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you. you too. And happy 4th of July. Forgot to mention that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> have a good day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.